According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Proverbs 24 this morning. Our first look at Proverbs 24, new chapter. I'm not sure how many sessions we took in chapter 23. Every now and then I go to the website and I look and I kind of get a get a sense for how long have we been in this chapter? Has it been too long? Are we moving too slow? And uh, just pray about it and trust the Holy Spirit knows what He's doing when He teaches each one of these classes from Wednesday to Wednesday. Proverbs 24, do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. We'll get through that, and then we got verses 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. All right, so there's the next two uh, words that we've got to cover. Remember, we've crossed into a new chapter, but we haven't really crossed into a new section. We're still working our way through the 30 sayings, the 30 sayings of the wise that started back in chapter 22, covered all of chapter 23, covers most of chapter 24. It's not until uh, we get down to verse 23 that we get to a new section where these also are the sayings of the wise. And you have uh, six supplemental sayings that uh, take you to the end of chapter 24. So uh, I think it's a bit ambitious. We're not going to get to the end of chapter 24 by the end of the year, I don't think. I'd be surprised if, uh, if we do. But uh, anyway, we'll just see what the Lord wants to do with it. Before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father in His faithfulness to bless our time in truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before Your throne of grace, just so thankful. Father, that here we are on uh, Thanksgiving week, the holiday our nation assigns to uh, to acknowledge your grace and your glory, Father, to give you thanksgiving for all of your grace provision in our lives. And I want to thank you this morning, Father, that you've provided for us a lampstand where the Word of God goes forth, line upon line, precept upon precept. We call upon your faithfulness once again, uh, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to faithfully and effectively open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts, Father. So bless us in your Word this morning. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so crossing into chapter 24 then brings us to Words of the Wise number 19. And uh, I'm just kind of following along in, uh, there's different ways that people have been numbering these and I've been trying to follow along in some different things. Essentially, um, I found that the Bible Knowledge Commentary has a very useful uh, delineation of these and so I'm, I'm basically using their structure for number 1 through number 30. Uh, there are distinctions to be found. I think I highlighted this for you the other day in the NIV Bible or the uh, other Bible translations where they number them slightly differently. Um, so, you know, just relax about that. And don't panic over it. In any event, there's 18 of them up through the end of chapter 23. And when we start chapter 24, we arrive at Words of the Wise number 19. Uh, understand three out of these 30 sayings all address envy. And so it shouldn't shock us that we're getting to envy again here uh, in verses 1 and 2. Three of the 30 sayings, the 30 of the Devre Chakamim, as we have it, the sayings of the wise, um, address envy. The number 13 addressed envy, 
which I can bring this back up here. And I failed to do this earlier. Let me do this. Let me open up the Proverbs layout. No. The pulpit layout. This is a layout that I call pulpit streaming. Do you know why I call it pulpit streaming? Because it's the layout I use in the pulpit while I'm streaming on YouTube. All right. And it just has a floating Bible window like this that we can lay on top of our um, slideshow. All right. Words of the wise number 13, words of the wise number 19, and words of the wise number 29. Uh, Out of the 30 different words of the wise that we have in between chapter 22, 23, and 24, out of those 30 sayings, three of them address envy, right? Three out of the 30 address envy. And you think, why is it so redundant? Why do we have these things stated over and over again? If we already addressed envy once, why do we have to address it again? Because we do. (laughs) All right, because this is the nature of how we learn. Uh, God doesn't just reveal things once and, and, and leave it at that. If it's something that needs to be emphasized, then he'll reveal it a second time, a third time, a dozen times. I mean, he'll just keep hammering on an issue so that it drives the point home. And we appreciate that. That's how the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture. That's how it's recorded in the written canon of Scripture. And that's how the Holy Spirit, um, I can't say inspires, but this is how the Holy Spirit empowers the verbal preaching of the Word of God, that the Holy Spirit will hammer it home, and through repetition it hammers it home. And we can appreciate that as well. So backing up to chapter 23, if you might recall just six words of the wise ago, the the, the divrei chakamim as we have it, uh, just six words of the wise ago, number 13, said, do not let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord always. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. So this was the tandem of two verses when the first time uh, that envy was addressed in these 30 sayings. And you might recall the elements that we highlighted here with respect to um, the permissive will that you apply to your own heart. (laughs) If your heart wants to envy, then stop it. Don't let your heart envy. And then uh, living in the fear of the Lord is an antidote here. So, so long as you have this attitude of the fear of the Lord, this is really the attitude that underlies what we're studying on Sundays now, uh, Sundays and Wednesdays now, related to abiding in the Word. Abiding in the Word is a fear of the Lord application. The more that you reverence the Lord, the more you're going to be living in His Word, because this is what He's designed for us, to worship Him, to serve Him, to grow, and everything else. And then surely there is a future we have a future. The unbeliever ha- only has a destiny, uh, right? The destiny in the lake of fire. But we have a future. We have a hope. We have the glories to look forward to, which means we need to be living in the fear of the Lord now. So there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. That's the first time that we addressed envy. There will be another one coming up at the end. Proverbs 24 verses 19 and 20. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. So even though it's a repetition, there's variety and there's differences in all three of these envy applications. Do not fret because of evildoers or be envious of the wicked. For there will be no future for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. And so that one really goes well with that first one. The first one uh, in chapter 23 talks about our future This one talks about their lack of a future. So you see 
how you put these together and you get a comprehensive understanding related to envy in this way. There will be no future for the evil, for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. He's going to reach the point of physical death and then he's going to be cast into the lake of fire and while he has an eternal destiny he doesn't have, the, the scripture describes it this way, it's described as no future. Right? It's an eternal destiny of wrath but it's not a future. Does that bother you? I, I think as long as we accept it on human terms, I think we, we, we might call it a future. We might think of it in the future tense. We may think that, well, it's coming up, that he's going to go to, the, uh, to hell, and then he's going to stand at the great white throne, and that he's going to go into the lake of fire. And all of that is in the future, as far as the time stream is concerned. It hasn't happened yet. So it's still future in, in a time sense. But it's not a future in a biblical sense as far as how God's defining it here, right? So it is in the future, but it is not a future. It is not what God has designed for us with our future hope, the way that it's described here. Anyway, I'm relaxed about it in, uh, because I just have to accept the Scripture the way it's written, <laughs> the, the term that God uses. And when God says we have a future and they don't, all right, I'll take it like that. They don't have a future. Um, they have a destiny. That's how I'll put it. They've got a destiny in the lake of fire for all eternity, and God doesn't call that a future. So we'll take it from there. All right. So we have the first one, we have the last one. Today we're addressing this middle one in twenty, chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. So this is kind of a tandem. There's twin elements that are, uh, that are addressed here. Not only the envy, which is how it starts, but also the uh, different verb besides envy. Yeah, the, uh, the desire or the lust or the wrongful desire to be with them, to identify with them, to associate with them, to, to be uh, linked with them in those circles, to be with them. The idea of, of proximity, the idea of, of a social um, circle, the idea that this is who you associate with, um, that's, that's also a sin. And even if you're not doing the evil, if you're just associated with them, you might as well be doing the evil because you're identifying with them. And that's, uh, that's the circle you're associated with. That's the crowd you're running with. And so the Bible warns us about that, about not... Uh, about uh, abstaining from every form of evil, every appearance of evil. That if it's just, don't even let it be named among you, right? So if that's the association that you're maintaining, then you're wrong for that. And some of those elements that happen there. For their minds devise violence and their lips talk of trouble. If that's the crowd you're associated with, then the way they think and the way they speak is going to rub off on you. You're going to start thinking that way. You're going to start speaking that way. And then before you know it, you're going to start acting that way. It's a very short step from the thinking and the speaking to the overt activity that invariably we end up doing in the process there. I do find here a pretty curious contrast between Kana and Kana. Actually, I shared this on Facebook a couple weeks ago um, when I was putting the slideshow together. Uh, to me, it's it's curious because it's a it's a, what do you call that a homophone it, it sounds the same they're different words but they sound the same kana sounds like kana but they're different words they're spelled differently they they come from different roots they have different meanings they're not at all synonyms in fact but it's curious the way that they're interlinked or the way that 
conceptually you can tie them together. So the curious contrast between kana and kana. The verb here for envy is kana. So here's your al and your uh, tikkane, all right? Coming from kana. So al tikkane. The verb kana is a verb of envy, Q-A-N-A, and then you have an apostrophe, not an H, you have an apostrophe, and specifically you've got an apostrophe that curves to the right, okay? Because it's different from the apostrophe that curves to the left. And um, kana, where it's spelled with the, the, the Q, the N, and the Aleph, okay? For those of you that don't read the Hebrew, that right there, that's the Aleph. And that's the H, that's the He right there. The only difference between Kana and Kana is whether it ends with an Aleph or it ends with an H. It ends with a He. And, and I tell you, this is something that's been bugging me for 30 years, okay? as long as I've been studying Hebrew, uh, is that I, I, I'm a terrible speller anyway, um, which hurts when you play Scrabble. But if you're, if you're trying to misspell Hebrew words, um, this is one of the things that constantly, constantly trips me up. When I think kana, kana, well, how do you spell kana? And, and I'm good with a Q in the end, that's obvious, although even that can be a puzzle because there's a, there's a, a, a K consonant, uh, the kaf, which sounds just like the, the kof consonant. So then you have to ask yourself, all right, kana, is it start with a K or is it start with a Q? <laughs> and then the, the middle N, that's easy enough. And then the final consonant, kana, kana, kana. All right, is that Aleph or is that hey? And then you, you have to puzzle over it for a bit until you remember. And in this case, both of them are Hebrew words from the Hebrew Old Testament. The Kana with the Aleph is Strong's number 7065, that means to envy. And Kana with the hey is uh, 7069, that means to acquire, to birth, to build, to beget, to steal. Uh, to purchase. Uh, it's, it's a verb that we actually spent a tremendous amount of time with as we were going through it in Proverbs chapter 8. And so as you're looking at these things, and you see the, uh, the word steady there, kana, 34 uses. Let me put these side by side for you. And let's just go to um, the other kana. All right. So just side by side, you can look at those. And again, they look almost identical. The, 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 they both start with kof. They both have noon as the middle letter. It's just the ending letter. In the case of kana, to envy, it ends with the aleph. And in the case of kana, to uh, acquire or to uh, purchase or to beget or to create, uh, kana ends with the hay. So does it end with the aleph or does it end with the hay? They sound identical. Okay, And maybe they only sound identical to our English ears or Hebrew. I mean, maybe a native Hebrew speaker would do better with, uh, with the Aleph. The Aleph, I was always told, is just close your throat like the, like the H in honest. So the H in honest, you don't, you don't pronounce it. 
honest, but you know that your throat is closed when you're saying the word honest. You're not saying honest, you're saying honest with a, with a closure of the throat. In the, uh, with the hay at the end of it, kana, the, the ending hay is, is, is virtually silent anyway unless you, unless you over-breathe through the kana, right? Kana or kana, close the throat, okay? And that's the only difference between these two words. And so it's a puzzle to me, and I do I find it curious that kana to envy is why do we envy, right? We envy the things that we want to acquire. <laughs> we envy because somebody else has acquired something and and uh, and I want to acquire it. You know, why do they have this? I want that. And so we envy. And and it's 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 um I'm suspicious that, that God designed the Hebrew language this way to have uh, the idea that if somebody else has kanad something and, and you want to kanah something, that you may end up kanahing something because you're envying what you want to acquire. Am I the only one amused by this? <laughs> I, I want all of us to be, to be hit by the sense that if, if, if I have yet to acquire something and I really want it and somebody else has it, that's envy. Right? That's exactly what envy is. That's, that's the, the mental attitude sin that feels it's wrong. It's somehow beneath my dignity that I should not have something when somebody else has it. They don't, they don't rate. They don't deserve that. Who are they? I should have that. And so you have all kinds of envy over money or fame or any, any possessions or, or whatever else that may be. Okay? All right. And yet both terms are applied to God Himself. And I love this. Okay? Um, the the kana to acquire, by the way, is um, what we talked about with the begetting of Jesus Christ in Proverbs chapter 8. Because kana to acquire doesn't tell you how you acquired it. It just means you got something you didn't have before. And so when you get something, now you have it. You didn't have it before, but you have it now because you got it. And that might mean you purchased it, if it's an economic context, it might mean you birthed it. If it's a childbearing context, it might mean you created it ex nihilo, you created it out of nothing. If it's a creation context, or maybe you stole it. If it's a crime context, uh, maybe you built it. Maybe you, uh, <clears throat> whatever the case is, you didn't have it before, you have it now. And only the context determines uh, whether you stole it or built it or created it or birthed it or, or whatever other uh, activity might be. It's a verb of acquisition. Eve said, I have acquired a son, and she named him Cain. She named him Cain because she had kanad, a son. She had acquired a son. All right, now God himself applies both verbs to himself. God, whose name is Jealous, is the possessor of heaven and earth. God, whose name is Jealous, is the possessor of heaven and earth. And so God, whose name is, and in both verbs, kanah and kanah, are applied in these passages. So we have sanctified usages of kana and kana. Exodus 34:14. This is why uh, worshiping other gods is considered spiritual adultery. This is why the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, that's Yahweh, 
whose name is jealous, whose name is jealous, okay, there's your kana, jealous, whose name is, okay, what kind of God is he? He is an El Kana. He is an El Kana. He doesn't tolerate you worshiping other Elohim. Yahweh is unique. Yahweh, who is your Elohim, will not tolerate worship of any other Elohim. So you shall not worship any other God. For Yahweh, whose name is jealous, whose name is envy, whose name is Kana. Okay? And so this is... um, this is interesting for us. It's like uh, items like fear, items like anger, items like jealousy, items, these things that we usually associate always with sin, we realize may not always be sinful. That there are sanctified versions of anger, a righteous indignation. There are sanctified versions of, of, uh, of jealousy. Paul told the Corinthians that he was jealous for them with a godly jealousy. And we want to be jealous for good deeds. We want to be, and, and the idea of being, and so sometimes in English we, we, we use a Z instead of a J. And we say, you can be zealous for God, right? And, it, and so if we use a Z, if we're zealous, then we think, okay, that's a good thing. But if we use a J and say jealous, oh, that's, that's a bad thing, right? And, and really, We've created an artificial distinction with, with two different English words, uh, but zealous and jealous are the same thing, okay, in the Hebrew, in the Greek. The idea, if I'm going to be jealous for the Lord, if I'm going to be zealous for the Lord, it's because I'm going to be jealous for His sake. I'm going to be so jealous for His sake, okay? And sadly, you know, um, our carnality turns jealousy into, you know, uh, a mental attitude sin uh, because it's mis- um, appropriating the emotions that God has built into us. And so jealousy and envy and all the wrong desires that we pervert because of our carnality are just the carnal expressions of what should be positive emotions, what should be positive desires. We should be jealous for the Lord with a godly jealousy. And um, that should drive our our desire to abide in His Word and to be in class every chance we can get because we're jealous, we're zealous for uh, our, uh, our love of God. Anyway, His name is Jealous. And He is a, what kind of God is He? He is a jealous God. An El Kana. He's also one who acquires everything. He is the acquirer of heaven and earth. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. Genesis 14, verses 19 and 22. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, God most high. This is Genesis 14. This is after Abram goes out, he gathers the men of his, of his household. He has enough armed men in his household that he can go attack four kings. Right? In Genesis 14, this is when the four invading kings attack the kings of the valley and Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated and the other cities there and all of the people are plundered and taken captive and that includes Lot. So Abraham grabs his men and he goes out to attack those armies because he's going out to uh, on a basically a, a search and rescue operation. He's having a military raid on four armies. Now does he have to defeat all four armies? No, he just has to go get Lot. 
<laughs> so he has to attack the one army that has Lot, but he ends up, when God gives him a marvelous victory, he brings everybody back. Sodom, uh, Sodom is rescued thanks to Abraham. The king of Sodom tries to reward Abraham. Anyway, this is the context here in Genesis 14. And, uh, and this is when Melchizedek comes out to worship. This is a tremendous victory and a glory for, for God. God gave Abraham an amazing victory. I can't think of a better testimony to the, um, to the institution of a new dispensation, right? You know, if, if, if you thought the day of Pentecost was spectacular, <laughs> when all the people in Jerusalem saw, you know, heard all these Gentile languages and realized, man, something's going on here. Yeah, something's going on here. It's a new dispensation. It's called the church age. That the, the plan for Gentile or the plan for Israel is put on hold for the time being. That was spectacular. This, this victory that God gave Abraham and this, this, um, this noteworthy event on the, on the world stage was so extraordinary that Melchizedek comes out to worship. Melchizedek, the king priest, the king of God most, the priest of God most high. Melchizedek, the, the very king priest that Jesus' priesthood is patterned after. The historical Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, he brought out bread and wine. Now he was priest of God Most High. A Gentile king priest of God Most High. And he's going to come out and worship. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. God, this is El Elyon. This is one of the, um, the common names for Elohim as God Most High. There were other Elohim, but they're created Elohim. God is the only uncreated I Am that there is. The only self-existent I Am. Every other Elohim is an angel, is a, is a created Elohim. So blessed be God, Abram of God Most High, possessor we have the uh, participle there, kone, possessor of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth. He's the one that obtained the heaven and the earth because he's the one that created it. He, he created it and it's his. Possessor of heaven and earth. Satan may think it's, it belongs to him now because he usurped it, but he didn't create it. And he only has it now in the permissive will of God. <laughs> and when God takes it back, Satan's done with it. Because El Elyon, God Most High, is the Kone, the uh, Kone Shemayim Wa'aretz uh, wa there, possessor of heaven and earth. All right? So both of these verbs, Kana, that we're looking at today, associated here with Proverbs 24.1, um, were to avoid jealousy, but God Himself is jealous. Right? We're to avoid envy. The things that we can't possess thank God. He gives, He takes away. If, uh, if I need it, He'll give it to me. If it's a good thing for me to have it, He'll give it to me. If it's not a good thing for me to have it, praise God that He doesn't give it to me. <laughs> praise God that, uh, you know, just because I want it doesn't mean it's, it's a good thing for me to have it. God knows better than I do. So uh, no good thing does He withhold from those who, who love Him, from those that, that uh, trust in Him. We need to... Uh, to appreciate these things. All right, that's verse 19, and then it gets repeated again in verse 22. But this is the praise here. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And it is uh, the Baruch blessing right there. And blessed be God Most High. And Baruch El Elyon. So Abraham is Baruch and El Elyon is Baruch. We get this mutual reciprocal blessing that's taking place. They're blessing God. God's blessing Abram. And Melchizedek's just celebrating everything. Just thrilled. Okay? And you would think as a Gentile king priest, prophet, priest, and king, as a Gentile, he might be tempted to have some sour grapes, to have some um, discouragements or disappointments, or he may be, um, if, you know, if he comes to realize that the age of the Gentiles is now concluded, that the age of Israel is, is, has now commenced, that there is a new steward in the world, and that this Abram guy is blessed of, of God Most High, that a whole new uh, realm is, is about, to, about to embark. That the Jewish people are going to be the stewards. And if, if Melchizedek was arrogant like Satan, then he'd have a huge problem with that. I'm convinced Satan absolutely could not deal with being a, a glorious angelic being and serving a dust creature as, as God was putting the plan in motion. What is man? What is the son of man? Who are these dust creatures and their pathetic uh, procreation that they do? <laughs> you can just, the, the, the dismissiveness of Satan against humanity is something else. So Melchizedek goes on, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So there is something to celebrate. But not confusing the occasion with the, the actual blessing, the actual worship. Abraham is blessed, El Elyon is blessed, and the occasion is uh, simply the testimony to how blessed they are. He, and he gave him a tenth of all. He, Abraham, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Okay? Abraham is the one that came back with the plunder. Abraham is the one that had, the, that had the tithe to give. And the book of Hebrews highlights this. The lesser is blessed by the greater, and the tithe is given from Abram to Melchizedek. Theologically, this becomes significant with respect to the fact that Aaron was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. In, in just showing the, 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 pre, the order of precedence between these priesthoods, the Melchizedek priesthood is a higher priesthood than the Levitical priesthood, as Levi was in the, the loins of Abraham on this event. So he gave him a tenth of all. So the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's amusing in my mind. Uh, but Abraham had just had worship with Melchizedek. Two believers that both have the capacity to worship El Elyon, to worship Yahweh, the Lord uh, God Most High, and they're, they're having a, a, a worship service. They actually partake of bread and wine, right? It's not a church age communion, but it is a, a, a communion of sorts that they're able to have while they bless God Most High together. And so they have this amazing fellowship. And what was the king of Sodom doing during all this? He wasn't joining with them. He wasn't worshiping. He wasn't praising God Most High. But he did notice the tithe that got his attention. Oh, money, right? Abraham's handing out some plunder, handing out some loot. And so now he very magnanimously says, give me the people and take the goods for yourself. 
In other words, he wants to stay king. And it's not guaranteed that he can stay king. If Abraham wants to be the new king, this guy's done. Okay? Abraham could claim all five of these cities and be king of all five of them. And uh, so here's the king of Sodom saying, give me the people, take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high. He has said, I have sworn to uh, Yahweh, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. Kone, as we have here, Shemayim Wa'aretz, that I will not take a thread I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. Not a thread, not a sandal thong. Remember when John the Baptist said he wasn't fit to loose the the thong, the the sandals off Jesus' feet? It's just a small thing. But Abraham says he won't even take that. Nothing. For fear that you would say, I have made Abram rich. What is the testimony going to be down the road if Abraham, if the word gets out that it was the king of Sodom who, gave, who made Abram wealthy. Abram doesn't want a testimony like that. <clears throat> so he says, I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. And so these Aner, um, Eshcol, and Mamre, they get their shares. The, they, you know, Canaanites, they took their shares. Curious to me, these Canaanites, okay? Keep this in mind. Um, because we're going to see the curse on Canaan coming up in Genesis chapter 9. And just because Canaan is cursed, and just because most of the Canaanites were idolaters and wicked people and homosexuals and everything else, these three were friends of Abraham. I think they were saved. I think the expectation is they at least um, they were supportive of, of Abraham's life and ministry and what was going on. So Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre, they were able to take a share. Canaanite plunder of the Sodomite uh, wealth. Anyway, possessor of heaven and earth. God whose name is Jealous is the possessor of heaven and earth. So if, uh, if you need a little bit more uh, word studies on this just to help you, um, you can find them. We may do some more coming up on, on different things, but I think for now we'll just let that go. Let's move on to verses 3 and 4. Words of the wise, number 20. Believers should build a house in wisdom even as wisdom herself has built her house. So we have um, a saying here in verses 3 and 4 that's going to put us in memory back to what wisdom herself spoke in Proverbs chapter 9. Let's spend some time on this now. Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4. We don't need to keep the Hebrew or the Septuagint open there. All right. So by wisdom a house... Yeah, got through verses 1 and 2. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So here's what we're dealing with. Here's what I think, uh, I don't know this for a fact, but to me, this is 
is this the foundation? Did, did Colonel Theme use this passage to create his edification complex of the soul? To create his, uh, some of you here this morning listen to more theme tapes than I ever have. Um, but this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about a physical structure. We're not talking about anything that an earthly carpenter might build a, uh, a physical house to live in. Because we're talking about the elements of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And we're talking about filling the rooms of this house with all pre- uh, precious and pleasant riches. And that comes from the Word of God. That is not gold or silver or precious stones. This is the, the, the wealth of doctrine that's available for believers that are functioning in, the, in the, uh, the house that God has designed us to function in. I think also building a house is more than simply a physical structure. Anyway, we're talking about a legacy to our children and our grandchildren, the house of so-and-so, right? The house of Abraham, the house of, of David, the house of, of Jesse. There's, there's different houses that the Bible talks about. We're talking about even the, the house of, um, of uh, I mean, there's just other expressions of that. When you connect it to a name, we're talking about that person and their spiritual legacy. And we have the, uh, the applications there. Wisdom herself has built her house. First of all, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. This, these are themes that we've, we've encountered repeatedly all going all the way back to chapter 1. These have been dominant themes of the book of Proverbs. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. That requires work. That means you're humble, uh, humble under biblical teaching. That means you're submitting to the authority of the Word of God. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. These are the things that build, establish, and fill the rooms of our spiritual house. They build, establish, and fill. The poetry on this is fun. Let me uh, pull this back up again as well. So... Um, and again, do you like coloring? Let's do uh, green for wisdom. Let's do yellow for understanding. And red. There we go. Pick whatever colors you want. Just color so that it, it, it jumps out at you. Okay? You have wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. Word studies that you can pursue, I think we've done them repeatedly. We understand, uh, you know, uh, Chachma, we understand. Uh, bean, I think that's bean or bana. Yep, tevuna. We understand dachath for knowledge. Yeah, we've had those terms repeatedly throughout the book of Proverbs. It's not new to us. What is new to us is the opportunity that we have to build a spiritual complex, to build a spiritual house, to build a structure whereby we are leading our families in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And then we have these verbs. The house is built. It's not understanding that builds it. It's not knowledge that builds it. It's wisdom that builds it. And then another verb for established. Okay? And, and what's this verb about? Is this different, different from building? What does it mean to make firm? What does it mean to fix solid? What does it mean to, to, uh, to establish? Okay, so I mean, it's one thing you can build something really cheap and fast and whatever, but it's not going to stand. You know, yes, it's built, but it's not secure. It's not firm. It's not established. 
It's not solid. It's going to fall down tomorrow. It's not, uh, it's not going to last or endure. Okay? So we need to build our house and we need it to be established. And then, so it's understanding that establishes it. It might be wisdom that builds it, but it's understanding that establishes it. And then it's knowledge that fills it. Knowledge then fills it. And so, um, you know, you can think of knowledge. I think wisdom and understanding are more qualitative, whereas knowledge is more quantitative, okay? Maybe not absolutely, but just in a sense. So you can have more or less. The more you know, the more knowledge you have. The things you don't know yet, um, you, you, can, you can know them later and, and add them to what you do know. So there is that. You can actually be functioning in biblical wisdom with very little knowledge and then just stay in wisdom the more you acquire knowledge, right? And I think wisdom itself qualitatively is intensified as you blend it with the, the greater understandings that, uh, that are available to us. Again, qualitative more so than quantitative Anyway, um, this is what we're doing. This is what we're doing. We're not just simply um, coming to church and learning facts and, and acquiring knowledge. It's just not knowledge for knowledge's sake, uh, sake, so that we can be walking Bible encyclopedias, we can win Bible trivia games, we can, we can uh, beat some people up with the things we know that they don't know yet. <laughs> we can belittle them for how little they know. And if they, if they knew as much as us, then they would be awesome, super grace believers like we are. Okay? Careful. These attitudes I'm describing is what Scripture describes. 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that's a big problem. That You can, you can have maximum knowledge and no wisdom to go with it. No, no wisdom, no understanding, and no agape love. And so all your knowledge is, is turning you into a monster. Your knowledge is turning you into something that Satan can really make great use of because Satan's got a lot of knowledge too. Satan knows more than we do. He's just functioning with the corrupted wisdom that, uh, of his fall that's left him as the, the, the devil that he is. So this is what we need for building our house. This is what we need. And so believers that are saturated with the Word of God, that are uh, like we're studying on Sunday and Wednesday now with the abiding in, in, in the Word series. Believers that are abiding in the Word are building this house. That's what we're doing because we're acquiring wisdom. We're acquiring understanding. We're adding to our knowledge. And in that knowledge, we're living in this love. And so we're building this house. And, and so we're, we're edifying ourselves. We're edifying our, our wives, our children, our uh, neighbors, those that are around us, we're building a house. Okay? That's what we're doing. And then once we get it built, once we get it secure, now we can start filling it with riches. We can fill the rooms to the, to the top with precious and pleasant riches. The fellowship occasions that we have in the Word of God to be able to minister to one another and serve one another and edify one another. I think when Abraham and and Melchizedek were fellowshipping and worshiping together, having communion and and blessing uh, God Most High, that that they were filling their rooms with, with riches. 
with this, uh, this metaphor here of uh, if you want to call it the edification complex of the soul, that's fine. I don't, I don't mind that. Whatever you want to call it. Um, Clarence Larkin had an image of this based upon a house that, that you build in, um, towards the back of his, of his dispensation book. You can find it there. Building a, a palace beautiful, right? That uh, is just, it's a believer living doctrine is what it is. You're learning it and you're living it. And, uh, and you're, you're creating for yourself a house, a marvelous house. No better place to live. So wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are what builds, establishes, and fills the rooms of our spiritual house. Only the Lord can do this. We will utterly fail if we attempt to do so without Him. And uh, Psalm 127 is uh, Solomon, just like Proverbs is Solomon. And uh, Solomon understands, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain to build it. Psalm 127 and verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Understand, God's the one that's at work. We're his fellow workers. We need to uh, faith rest and, and walk in the fear of the Lord and get on board with what He is producing. And that includes building the, the spiritual house of our soul. That includes uh, the, the heritage that we leave to our children and our grandchildren. And uh, if, we, if we lose track of what God is doing and we try to impress Him with what we're doing, how useless is that? God's not impressed. <laughs> you know, we, we, we accomplish whatever and we think we're so proud of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, just like Cain and his vegetables, the Lord had no regard. No regard for Cain or his sacrifice. The Lord had no regard. The disciples were pointing out the buildings to Jesus, and Jesus says, yeah, it's getting torn down. (laughs) Not one stone will be left that will not be torn down. Here they are all impressed with this marvelous uh, temple that, that, that Herod, the pagan Herod, had built for them. Lord says, no, it's the temple God's building for you. That's what I'm looking forward to. So unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord guards the city, anything that we try to do apart from what God is doing, even if we succeed in human terms, what have we accomplished? We, we've accomplished human effort. We've accomplished human production. And human production not, doesn't last. Only divine production lasts. So let the Lord build the house. Let the Lord guard the city. And, um, and if you think that, oh, it's not going well, I need to do some overtime, right? I need to retire late. I need to rise up early. I need to, uh, the answer to all my failures is just working harder and doing more. <laughs> That'll fix it. No, I'm just, why am I losing sleep over this? Why am I, you know, just, I'm adding sin to more sin. I just need to walk with the Lord and then faith rested after that. So uh, don't eat the bread of painful labors. Eat the, eat the daily bread that he graciously supplied. He gives to his beloved even sleep. You know what? God's giving you food. God's giving you work. God's giving you sleep. Praise him for every step of the way. Praise him when you eat. Praise him when you work. Praise him when you sleep. And say, Father, I'm going to be asleep for the next eight hours. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'll be off the clock. And uh, 
thank, thank the Lord that he's, he's still on duty. He's doing what he's doing. He's providing. And we can thank that. All right. So this is what we do when we build the house. And uh, we're, we're walking with the Lord while the Lord builds a house. Let's remind ourselves of what Proverbs 9 was dealing with. 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. Now keep in mind, this follows Proverbs chapter 8. This is the, I think it's the last of a long series of personification passages. Passages where hakma, an abstract noun, is personified. Spoken of as a person. And this person, in case you're confused of who this person is, this person is Jesus Christ. All right? Um, and if, if you encounter a pastor that disputes that, I'm sorry, but they're wrong, and, and this is my conviction, and this is, to me, it's undebatable. That this person is the beloved one of God the Father. This person is the creator. This person is the one that worked hand in hand with God the Father to create the universe. Who did that? Jesus Christ did that. This person is. Um, the one that that blesses us when we walk with this person. Okay, if we reject this person, it says, "He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord." Who else can that be besides Jesus Christ? When you come to Christ, you have eternal life. If you don't come to Christ, you don't have eternal life. He who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. He who sins against me injures himself. All those who hate me love death. If you want to abide in death, you can abide in death. But when you receive Christ, you can abide in Christ. This is the difference between being saved or lost. And it comes down to your, your what, what think you of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. Do you accept the gospel? Or do you reject the gospel? And so um, wisdom personified is Jesus Christ. You get to the gospel of John, he's called the Logos. He's called the Word. In Proverbs, he's called Hakma, he's called wisdom. Okay? And some people get so confused just because Hakma is a feminine noun and just because um, wisdom is spoken of, when wisdom is personified as a woman, wisdom has built her house. Well, of course, Hakma is a feminine noun. Wisdom is personified in the poetry of Proverbs as a woman. And the warning against. Um, embracing the wrong kind of woman is changed up with, is contrasted with embracing the right kind of woman. There's no better woman to embrace than Lady Wisdom, than uh, living your life according to the Word of God for the glory of Jesus Christ. All right. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. That's a big house. (laughs) All right. I've only got two pillars in front of my house. And... uh, but she's got seven pillars. <clears throat> she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. Ooh, okay, there's good things inside that house. <laughs> okay, it's not just a building, but it is a place of, of, of wealth. It's a place of prosperity. It's a place of feasting. It's a place of drinking. It's a place of celebrating. Remember, wine is not evil. Drunkenness is evil. But wine is a blessing for those that are rejoicing. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. So this is a huge house, okay? With servants, with the next generation being prepared. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. So this is a welcoming house. This is a place whereby folks are invited and welcome to come. 
and uh, much better than the other houses where they could be going. And the other kind of women that are calling out in their, um, in their uh, operations. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here to him who lacks understanding. All right, so wisdom is not only a, a gracious provider, but wisdom is a teacher. Wisdom has provision for the naive and for the, for the simple. Come, eat of my food, drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. This is the call of Jesus Christ to any born-again believer to be living in the Word of God. Not just to be a, a believer, but to be a disciple, to be abiding in the Word. This is the basis that, like we're teaching on, on Sundays and Wednesdays now in this Abiding in the Word series. Forsake your folly and live, proceed in the way of understanding. So verses 1 through 6 here Understand, wisdom has built her house. We have a house to build as well. And the house that we build should be patterned after the house that, that, that Lady Wisdom builds in this, uh, in this text. Every husband and helpmate has a household to keep, keeping the way of the Lord. I'm going to have to close with this, but we've got seven minutes left, so let's get to this. This is what we do when we build a house. Every man that leaves his father and mother and cleaves to, his, uh, to one another, the two become one flesh. There is now a new unit, a new uh, husband and wife tandem that is all about building a house. All right? This is fundamental to the nature of humanity. This is not fundamental to angelity. Angels don't procreate. Angels are all simultaneously created. Angels are all peers with one another. But uh, humanity is hierarchical. Humanity is procreative. We have generations. The generations before us that raised us and the generations after us that we raise. And then the generations after them they will never see. But they're on the way. Okay, They're in the loins of our children just as they, you know, they're on the way. They don't exist yet. They're on the way. But they, uh, they were in our loins. Now they're in the loins of our children. They're on the way. And I think about building a house. Again, the house that we build. I think of the, um, the statement of the Lord regarding Abraham when he's on his way to destroy Sodom. And he asks himself this question. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It's a bit of a rhetorical question and the answer is no. God is not in the business of hiding the will of God with his fellow workers. Okay? Abraham is the, is the recipient of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is the head of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Abraham is the patriarch of the new uh, stewardship that is the dispensation of Israel. And they're fellow workers with the Lord in the Old Testament setting and God is not going to hide from them what he's about to do. Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now that is the long-term eternal prophecy, eternal destiny, eternal future that the Jewish people can look forward to. The nation of Israel will be the nation that blesses all the nations of the earth. That's their millennial future, that's their kingdom future. But along the way to get to that kingdom future... 
is going to be an individual family future, going to be an individual house uh, blessing that's going to happen. Starting in verse 19, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. So this is wisdom building her house. This is us building our house by wisdom and understanding and knowledge, filling the room with treasures, precious treasures. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Oh, this is powerful. There's there's just so much that's in here. The the, the long-term prophecies that relate to the seed of Abraham, the Jewish nation, the, the Jewish people in the millennial kingdom, but then the immediate application that applies to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and the servants and uh, the immediate household, commanding his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And how do they do this? They're doing this as a family, keeping the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. All right? So this is why husbands are given helpmates. They can't do this by themselves. Well, first of all, until the man's married, how's the baby going to come along? <laughs> all right. Um, he's got, he needs the wife. Uh, it's just the man is not good for the man to be alone because the, the be fruitful and multiply, uh, he's not going to do that alone. That's going uh, to need the wife. And then when the babies come, now how are you going to raise those kids? You need the father and the mother. Okay, this is God's design. And uh, we're not just talking about um, in, in earthly terms, not just talking about biology, not just talking about the, the secular upbringing, about passing along the heritage, passing along the fear of the Lord, passing along the reverence for the Lord. The children are going to see, um, they're going to see the dynamic of grace. They're going to see the dynamic of, of um, wisdom and understanding and knowledge. And they're going to see that played out. They're going to see the dynamic between the father and the mother. And if, if they're believers living the Word of God, the children are going to learn from that. This is how that, that, that doctrinal um, priorities are passed on. And they're going to see sin. They're going to see uh, failures. They're going to see heartbreak. But, and then they'll see forgiveness. And then they'll see, um, you know, not, not perfect. No, no parents are perfect. But they're going to see... God's grace in, in, in every situation that they observe as children. And then they're going to carry that forward to their marriage, into their generation, as they raise their children and the issues that happen there. All right. Lord willing and rapture pending, we'll uh, come back to this next week and then we'll move on to uh, Words of the Wise number 21. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the blessing that we have to... Um, to understand these things, to not get lost in the metaphor, Father. It's not about the house or the apartment or the condo or the, the RV or, or the tent or whatever, whatever physical structure we, we sleep in, whatever roof we're under uh, from night to night. It's the house that we build, Father, in the spiritual house of wisdom and understanding and knowledge, the legacy that we pass on to our children and grandchildren, the, um, the glory that we produce so that uh, the king of uh, Melchizedek, or the king of Salem and the king of Sodom both will observe our service to you. And we have a, uh, a testimony as your servants. So 
In all these things, Father, I pray that you open our eyes to our application, that we consider the house that we're building, how we're doing it and why. Open our eyes and, and lead us into these things. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.